it's 85 years ago that the publisher, Simon & Schuster, first printed uh, a book that was based on a lecture series by the motivational speaker, Dale Carnegie. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I'm sure you've probably heard of that title, even if you've never read the book. It has the, the principles of coming alongside a person, letting the other one do the talking, asking questions rather than giving orders. And it would seem not based on the methodology of the preacher in our passage today. With it. I mean, if you want to build a relationship with someone, calling them a snake doesn't seem a very good start, does it? You know, you brood of vipers. No, I don't think you'd be too happy with me if I came to the lectern and started off every sermon with a bit of a, what a horrible bunch you are. But then again, a lot depends on tone of voice, doesn't it? And maybe the scriptures um, don't always give that, rather like a 280-word tweet on social media doesn't give um, the sort of context always. You know, does John the Baptist shout it with an angry face a touch of playfulness, a bit of a twinkle in the eye, pulling them in, a bit of a Terry Thomas ding-dong. You know, you know, you brood of vipers. You know, before pulling them in. It's rather tricky to tell. It could be either the gentle coaxing of the smooth talker or the shock jock style like a rabbit in the headlights, surprising them and freezing them there because they didn't expect to hear it. We don't know which of them it is. We, but we do know that they'll listen with open ears to the man who says that they can't rest on their laurels. They can't simply stay where they are. They need to change their ways past practice isn't good enough, and they need to live for God. But what is it to live for God? What do we think the prophet telling them that the axe will chop the unfruitful tree will instruct? Well, the, the prophet's throughout time, tend not to point towards the temple. They want people to live a godly life. They want people to pray. They want people to follow the earlier scriptures, to know the commandments. But they tend not to start that point by talking about religious practice. It's not about 
singing in order to sing. We, we take that understanding as a given. But it's about daily living in a godly way that is our priority. And John's response reflects the earlier prophet Micah, who asked the rhetorical question, what does the Lord require of you? And answers it with to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. John doesn't quite put it into that same statement, but the sentiment is there in what he says. He thinks of who may be in his crowd and what they may do, and before him are people who may not be extremely wealthy, but have more than just enough to live on. He didn't say give up everything, sell the lot, does he? But he asked them to consider what they really need and live accordingly, sharing their food and their clothing. He's challenging them to do in some way what we do with the food bank. When we have enough, we can give something. When we have more than enough, we can maybe give more. And as we approach Christmas, what does his message of, if you've got two shirts, you can lose one of them, say, what does that message say to us of our largesse in our gifts? our feast of roast beast. Is it the priority of getting or giving that's important at Christmas? It's important to think of the poverty of the stable, the humble nature of the king of all of creation laid in a manger and also that experience that comes post-epiphany after the magi have been and how the young child and his family flee as refugees to a foreign land. If you've got two shirts, are you giving one to a refugee? And that is the sort of challenge this text puts before us today. And I imagine if it was done on a percentage-wise, we would all fall short of that, giving away half of what we have. It was perhaps easier 2,000 years ago for the people with little to think of what they have. But we must remember the professions named were more like the middle classes of society than the farm labourer that was engaged on a daily basis. The tax collectors 
and people who were soldiers are folk that might have been considered disreputable because of their professions, but they also had power and often used it in unjust ways. To them, John doesn't say, go get a new job, you're in the wrong profession. But he says, live rightly within that role. He tells them to be honest, not to cheat, not to abuse their power, not to coerce others. That's because a country needs tax collectors. It needs civil servants, it needs bankers, it needs accountants. Else, how do we then pay the people that fix the road? Or who teach? Or who work in the health service and manage the judicial system? How do they get paid if we don't collect in the taxes? And the people that you want collecting the taxes have to be reputable people. What is important is that each one seeks to serve in a fair manner rather than thinking of their own gain, that lives in a way that gives glory to God and serves in the best way that they can. Likewise, the soldier, or today the police officer, has a responsibility to protect the vulnerable. When the Baptist says they are to be content with their pay, it's not meaning never getting a pay rise, but they are not to be extorting additional income from those who are weak and defenseless, running a protection racket, not accepting bribes. Now, the pay packet is to be their source of income so that they may operate without favour and justice may be known among the people. However, while telling them to be content with what they get, John also tells them to desire more. Not to desire more money, but to desire more of God. He is not the Messiah. He can only take them so far. He is preparing the way. He is encouraging them to change their lives, to repent of what dishonors God, and be immersed, baptized into a new life. Now, baptism, of course, was not really a thing practiced by the children of Abraham. Its place was for those who were coming from other understandings, Gentiles. As they converted to Judaism, they would have a baptism. They'd be immersed. To have a baptism was to acknowledge that the old heritage of your birth and the succession that was in that was insufficient. It was saying that old life wasn't good enough. 
that new life had to come. And so it's that thing about going against, simply saying, oh, we're children of Abraham. That's not enough, John told them. But John tells us here that the dunking he was bringing was an outward sign of that change and that a greater baptism was needed to truly become God's, the baptism that Christ would bring. A baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. When we baptize, it is a a recognition of our turning to Christ, of repenting of sin, but also of what Christ gives us when we do that a recognition that the Holy Spirit comes to us and cleanses us. And the Greek word here that we translate to the English word fire is puri. It's where we get the the root of the word purify. It's a baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit is coming into our heart. It's marking us as God's. It's being God's presence within our life. but we have the baptism of fire, which is not here a troublesome time, as the phrase is sometimes understood, but a baptism where we are spiritually purified of sin, forgiven with no trace of what was before. The sin is removed from us by our baptism in Christ. Hence why the body of Christ, that is the church, which is you and the other believers, is said to be holy. You are holy because of what Christ does. He purifies you with his fire coming upon you. We are a holy people because we are each sanctified by what Christ has done. Those are words that don't always sit comfortably with us. But when we give ourselves to God, when we turn to Christ and seek to follow his way, that is what happens. We're marked by the Spirit and forgiven our sin. We have the challenge of whether we are a brood of vipers. And the answer should be evident, I would hope, that we are not. However, if we, if we bite and cause pain, if we carry venom, in our words, then we cannot be truly reflecting the way of Christ who has died in our place that we are forgiven. Our hearts filled with the Spirit 
means that we should reflect the way of Christ, following the way of compassionate giving of self, and that we are people who do not abuse positions of trust or dishonesty, but always act with integrity. It is when we reveal something of that life of Christ in us that the relationship between believers grows, that the church grows, and that people will want to have us as friends. And not simply us, but our Savior Jesus. May we win friends. May we influence people. But above all, may he influence all we do and all we say, such that Christ is always the example we follow. Amen.